On September 26, 1997, 18-year-old Kelly Eckhart clocked out from her part-time job at a local Walmart near her hometown of Bogstown, Indiana. She wandered around the store with her boyfriend for a little bit, just picking up a few things. The couple left the store around 10 p.m., each in their own cars. But, inexplicably, Kelly Eckhart never made it home. And even stranger, her car was found abandoned in a rural area around two hours later. Hi, Curious Listener. Welcome back to Corn Fed Killer. I'm your host, Michelle O'Dell. So, Curious Listener, where was Kelly Eckhart? Her car was found with the keys still in the ignition, the lights still on, and her purse sitting on the passenger seat. Had someone picked her up? And if so, why would she leave her keys and her purse behind? To investigators, this did not bode well for young Kelly Eckhart. Meanwhile, across town, young wife and mother, Melissa Holland Overstreet, was at home with her children, half wondering where her husband was and half relieved that her husband wasn't home. Sometime after 11 p.m. that night, her husband's brother, Scott, burst in the front door, talking quickly, clearly jittery and agitated. He told Melissa that she had to go pick up her husband, Dean, at the shooting range. Melissa didn't understand why she had to go get him. Why didn't Scott just bring him home if he had been with him before? Why, why did she have to go out? Scott refused to explain anything to Melissa and just kept telling her that she had to go get Dean that Dean was waiting for her. Melissa was scared to go. She didn't know what she would find when she got there. You see, her husband was unpredictable and prone to violence. For those same reasons, though, she was afraid not to go get him. So she did, praying that she would make it back home alive and unharmed. When she arrived at the shooting range, Dean was indeed waiting for her. She could tell right away from his body language that he was, quote, in one of his crazy states of mind, end quote. When she parked the car, he opened the back door and placed the rifle that he had slung over his shoulder on the back seat. Then he got in the car, in the, er, pardon me, in the front seat of the car without a word. Melissa started driving them home. She asked Dean what was going on. He would not tell her. All he said was, quote, leave me alone. It is not a good idea to mess with me right now, end quote. Melissa knew what he was capable of, so she did not ask him any more questions. When they arrived home, he went into the bedroom, checked to make sure that his handgun that he kept under his pillow was in its place, and it was, 
so he laid his head down and simply went to sleep. Four days later, Kelly's partially nude body was discovered by a woman who was out walking her dog. Kelly's body was lying in a ravine near, or pardon me, along Bear Creek Road in Brown County, Indiana. Her body was taken to the medical examiner's office for examination, but it was clear right away to investigators that young Kelly Eckhart had been murdered. The news of the discovery of Kelly's body was all over the TV news that night. Melissa Holland Overstreet saw the news story about the discovery along with her husband, Dean. She just knew in her gut that her husband was responsible for what had happened to Kelly. After all, Kelly had gone missing the same night that she had picked Dean up from the shooting range, the same night that he and his brother had both acted sketchy, nervous, and agitated. Melissa knew better than to accuse her husband of anything, so she simply asked him if he knew Kelly Eckhart. He yelled at her, quote, I can't believe that you think I could do anything like that, end quote. This reaction confirmed for Melissa what she already knew. The next day, he sent her out to get the newspaper, which in and of itself was kind of weird because he was not somebody who regularly followed or read the news. When she brought back the paper, all he did was read the article about Kelly. And then she said that he followed the news reports on Kelly very closely. The knots in Melissa's stomach grew. She wanted to tell police what she suspected, but she was terrified. You see, Melissa had snitched on Dean once before, and it cost her dearly. Melissa and Dean had been high school sweethearts, and even then, Dean was controlling and could get downright scary. Melissa never forgot about the time she had purchased a band poster from a male classmate, and Dean had freaked out. The next day, Dean had brought a gun to school, showing it to Melissa and telling her that he was going to, quote, take care of the poster situation, end quote. That's the first time that she really started to think that he might actually hurt someone for real. So she reported Dean to her math teacher, telling her math teacher that he had brought a gun to school. He was arrested and put on probation and then released to his parents. He, of course, found out that it was Melissa that had dogged him in. He confronted her saying that she that she disappointed him and that he thought that she knew him better than that. Basically, you know, he gaslit her. He also put his hands around her throat and threatened her. What would he do to her now if she told police that she suspected him of murdering Kelly Eckhart? 
Meanwhile, investigators confirmed that Kelly had been strangled with a shoelace and a strip cut from her own overalls. She had also been shot in the head. And quite horrifically, Kelly had been raped. Her parents and family were, of course, devastated. And the community was, frankly, frightened. And Melissa, she was reeling. She was just sick about what had been done to Kelly. Her heart ached for Kelly's family. Though Melissa didn't know Kelly personally, she was just sick thinking that her husband had stolen the life of this promising young woman. Kelly was a well-liked young freshman at Franklin College who was working at Walmart just trying to put herself through school. Melissa knew she had to tell police of her suspicions. Well, curious listener, as it would turn out, Melissa wouldn't have to be the one to go to police. On November 7th, 1997, a friend of her brother-in-law's contacted the police and reported that Scott Overstreet, the brother-in-law, you remember the one who had come over that night and said that she had to go pick him up, told him that his brother, Michael Dean Overstreet, had something to do with the murder of Kelly Eckhart. That same day, Police asked Melissa to come down to the police station and answer some questions about her husband. Melissa was relieved that someone had told, but also terrified. She told police, you have to arrest him. You have to get him behind bars or he's going to kill me and maybe even my kids. She told them everything. She told them all her suspicions regarding Michael Dean or Dean as he went by involvement in Kelly's murder. She told them all about that night and how he had been agitated, how she had picked him up at the shooting range, about the rifle he had with him. She told them about Scott coming to her house that night. She told them all about her husband's penchant for violence, about his paranoia, his controlling behavior, and that he was often delusional. Police arrested Michael Dean Overstreet that same day. Investigators corroborated Melissa's story. Scott Overstreet also told police what he knew. He told police that on the night of the murder, his brother Michael Dean had called him and asked him to meet him at a motel. Scott did. He told police that he transported his brother and a girl that he didn't know to a remote area where he dropped them off. He didn't know at the time that the girl was Kelly Eckhart. He didn't realize this until he saw the news report that she had gone missing. Then he knew. He says that Michael returned there later and moved Kelly's body to Brown County. Later, 
police were able to match fibers that were found on Kelly to fibers from inside of the van. Furthermore, semen that had been collected from inside Kelly Eckhart was a DNA match to Michael Dean Overstreet. Additionally, an eyewitness identified him as the man that they had seen near the dump site on the day that he had moved the body. So next step, trial, of course. At the trial, Overstreet's defense attorney hit hard on Overstreet's past struggles with mental illness, stating that he had had hallucinations, including seeing, de seeing demons. They talked about how his mother had never gotten him help for his mental illness, and he had even been discharged from the Marines, stating mental illness. But... The evidence was hard to dispute, and Michael Dean Overstreet was found guilty of the rape, confinement, and murder of Kelly Eckhart. He was sentenced to death on July 31st, 2000. As for Melissa, she was relieved to finally be free of Overstreet and promptly filed for divorce. She did say that it was hard for her to live in this, that town because people vilified her just for having been married to him and that children taunted her kids at school. You know, your dad's a murderer, that kind of thing. Melissa was able to get a judge to allow her to change her children's last name to her maiden name, Holland. And this helped. And eventually, you know, people moved on as different, you know, new stories broke. People didn't focus on this as much. And she was able to, you know, live basically normally in the town. Well, Kelly's parents, of course, they couldn't move on and they decided to work through their unimaginable pain by moving into action. They fought for a law to be passed that would allow family members of murder victims to give impact statements at the sentencing hearings of their murderers. Now, this was a huge thing because prior to this, at least in Indiana, that didn't happen. So when it came to sentencing time and the judge or, you know, the jury would recommend sentencing, no one heard from the families. No one heard what the families went through, what they wanted, you know. So this, this is a huge deal. And this law was deemed Kelly's law and was passed in 2002. I don't know if I said that already, <laughs> but um, yeah, Kelly's Law and still on the books. Um, so pretty awesome that they were able to do something positive, you know, out of this unimaginable tragedy. Uh, not only that, they also set up a scholarship at Franklin College in Kelly's name. That is not quite the end of the story, curious listener, 
because 14 years after he was placed on death row, Michael Dean in 2014, Michael Dean Overstreet, who by this time had been diagnosed with schizotypical personality disorder and psychological deterioration, was found not competent to be executed by St. Joseph Superior Court Judge Jane Woodard, Woodward Miller. Now, interestingly enough, St. Joseph County was not the county in which Overstreet had been convicted, nor was it the county where the murder had taken place. When Johnson County Prosecutor Brad Cooper, who was part of the prosecution in Overstreet's case, got wind of this decision, he said, quote, I was angry and suspicious when this case was sent to a distant judge who is not accountable to the Johnson County citizenry or to a grieving mother who couldn't even afford to drive up for the hearing. The idea that this convicted, murdering, rapist monster is too sick to be executed is nothing short of outrageous and is an injustice to the victim, her mother, the jury, and to the hundreds of people who worked to convict this animal. End quote. I think he put it beautifully. I really, really do. Um, her parents were also devastated by this news. They could not understand how this could happen. This man had brutally raped and murdered their daughter, had been sentenced to death, and now was going to be spared. Her, you know, Kelly wasn't spared. Their, their beautiful daughter wasn't spared. How can this be? Well, this decision was sent to the Indiana Supreme Court and to, to see, I'm sorry, the attorney general to see if the, an appeal was going to be undertaking, undertaken and sent to Supreme Court to appeal this judge's decision that he should not be executed. Tragically, in my opinion, they decided not to appeal this decision and he is still in jail on death row, but he has what is called a stay of execution, meaning that he's not going to be executed anytime soon because he's incompetent. They say that he cannot understand why he would be executed. He can't understand the reasons behind it. He doesn't any longer understand what he did. In fact, there's some report, some doctor said that he believes that he's already dead. What? Okay. Um, I'm not making light or anything of mental illness because it is a real thing. And, you know, schizotypical or schizophrenia is no joke. Um, I can't even imagine how horrible it would be to live with 
this illness where you might see or hear or feel things that aren't real. I don't make light of that ever. So please don't get me wrong. But, but two things. If he already thinks he's dead, what difference would it make if we execute him? I mean, really? And two, why does it matter if he's competent? He's already been sentenced. This is it. This is the sentence that he was given. It's not like he's going to trial. It's not like he's even going to a sentencing hearing. He's already been sentenced. I mean, I understand the incompetent to stand trial thing, but this isn't a trial. He's already been sentenced. And I, I don't get it. I disagree with this 100%. I think they should follow through with the execution. I think it's ridiculous that he was deemed incompetent to be executed. It doesn't make any fucking sense to me. It really doesn't. I would love to hear your opinion, especially if, if, if it contradicts mine, because I would love to hear your reasoning. You can send me an email at cornfedkiller at gmail.com or DM me on the Instagram page, cornfedkiller or at cornfedkiller podcast. Um, but yeah, crazy. I'd love to hear, like I said, love to hear what you think. As always, you can find photos on the Instagram page. And I will look forward to hearing your thoughts on this. Until next time, curious listener. Bye.